and welcome to this OnSpec Q&A. Um, I am delighted to be here with Alisa Resnick, who is a reporter on our most recent podcast, Keeping the Colorado. Alisa, what a powerful and compelling story Keeping the Colorado was. I was really blown away by it. Thank you, Nadine. Uh, I appreciate it. Now, very clearly, the river means so much to you. You've grown up around it. Your father was was a river guide. So can you tell us a little bit more about what his job entailed and how you as a child sort of spent time on the river? Well, my dad has been a river guide, I guess, really since he was a teenager, um, right after he was out of high school. I should clarify, this is the Colorado River from the title Keeping the Colorado. Correct. This is the Colorado River. Um, My dad was a river guide when he was a teenager and um, throughout his 20s. Um, and part of his 30s, and then kind of off and on when I was a kid, he was still going on um, commercial trips and science trips. So, you know, helping take scientists down down the river that were doing um, studies about fish or climate or or other things like that. Um, And then I got to go on a private trip with my family when I was, um, I guess, 12 or so. Um, So that was just the four of us. And um, yeah, that, that was also really special. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of been a, a big part of my life, uh, growing up kind of distantly. And I think Flagstaff is one of those places where if you grew up in Flagstaff or you still live in Flagstaff, you likely have some connection to, to the Grand Canyon, to this river. It's a river that 40 million Americans are dependent on and it's in danger. That's correct. So, you know, the river in a, in a very, in a very pragmatic way, has always been a part of of every single one of our lives. But I would say that this year it has shifted significantly, that conversation, because we're seeing changes that we just really haven't before. You know, at the same time, this river is so much of a lifeblood to us, as we've discussed. Um, So it's really hard to understand how to digest news about where we're headed now with this river. It certainly came across, and and actually pain or in, in some of the interviewees where they were talking about the river there's a sort of pain and, and grief of what sadly now feels like it might be inevitable and and, and listening to you there you you say that those these conversations have been happening for years and now there's an urgency it must be very frustrating for those people living along the river that why the urgency now when it's almost too late why haven't why hasn't there been an urgency sooner? Hmm. Yeah, and it's a really delicate discussion having the asking those questions. I mean, I talk about this a little bit in the podcast, but um, every one of our characters, well, every one of the people that we met along this river, um, I asked kind of some version of that question of what does the future look like without the Colorado River? And, um, you know, I realized while we were reporting it, how weird of a question that is, almost how impossible of a question that is to answer. And that really showed in the responses that people had to that question. You know, we asked policymakers that as well and um, and everyday people. And, um, you know, I think there's a line of thinking that um, would say that that's just not a helpful question to ask um, because there are such high-level discussions happening, so many backup plans for um, when this river, you know, dips below a level that is sustainable anymore. Um, 
there's a lot of different negotiations going on with um, different stakeholders who have shares of the river's output. So I do understand that line of thinking that that question is is not a helpful one at this time. However, um, you know, when you kind of zoom out from the issue, I, I think there's another line of thinking where it's kind of, you know, like, why not have those discussions? Why not have those frank discussions and figure out why it's so hard to talk about? Because, you know, it's, again, the, the news that we hear from um, the levels in, in the Colorado River, they're just not good. Um, this year, Lake Mead dipped to unprecedented levels, so much so that bodies that had been that had been buried there, um, water buried there, began to reveal themselves. Um, you know, so that's this sort of weird other side of this that I, I guess I don't know if there's anything that really illustrates the stage that we're in. I think that is that is really it. Um, and the so, metaphor of dead bodies appearing in a in the reservoir. Exactly, exactly. So it's um it's 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 a hard thing to talk about. It's a weird thing to talk about. Um, and I I will say that um you know I really understand both sides to that because I too live in Arizona and um yeah I I think every day it's kind of this question of like okay how do how do I think about this river how urgent should things be because um you know. There are a lot of backup plans. There are a lot of deals that are going through, and there are a lot of really like complex discussions about what to do next. So this is definitely not something that people have been sleeping on, but it is also an inevitable. Or it, it's a it's an undeniable fact that that the river is drastically changing in many areas. Um, I, I was really struggling with how to how to end this piece because there's this is a story where there's not a whole lot of good news. Um, and I think that maybe the way that it ends, some people might find a little bit naive even because, um, you know, the idea of this river drying up is not something that I think anybody would say we're, we're at right now. That's not the point that we're at. Um, and I didn't mean it to be naive. I more just meant it that we, a lot of the people that we spoke to were really you know, even though they acknowledge these cha dire changes that are happening to the river, they still come away with this, this optimism, you know, so I guess I was really struck by this idea of the river as uh, separated from this day to day news, which again, is very bad. Um, and thinking about it as this really long running, uh, almost person onto itself. And you're living in Arizona, you're a journalist, you're covering stories about the river and about the, the dire situation and that, that it's drying up. But you're also an ordinary citizen who is turning on the tap and worrying about whether water is going to come out of it one day. So how does how does that work being somebody who's actually living in the heart of a big news story? Well, first, uh, words like drying up are very stressful to hear for all Arizonans, including myself. Um, and I think that you know, like I said, this is definitely something that people have been preparing for for a really long time. Cities, farms, stakeho other stakeholders, tribes. For example, um, Tucson, where I live, agreed to not take as much of its share of Colorado River water this year because they say that they have other sources to sustain uh, life here in Tucson. That is not the case everywhere. Um, you know, Pinal County, which is more of a rural county, took cuts in its water output this year because of uh, deals forged um, among the seven states called the Drought Contingency Plan. 
So that went into effect because of the water levels uh, being what they are now. So that question of what does that future look like, it really depends on where you are. And for example, there's a there's a tribe along the uh, Colorado River on the border with California and Arizona that is hoping to get a bill passed Congress that would basically allow the tribe to lease some of its water um, to different parts of the state. So it's literally moving water around or moving the rights to the water around. Moving literal water around, yes. And uh, that's also what happens here in Tucson. Um, the water that is delivered to southern Arizona is carried by a 336-mile-long aqueduct system. So sometimes it can feel like we have this big bathtub full of water, Colorado River water, as the state of Arizona. And sometimes it can kind of feel like we are just, you know, each having our own cups and moving the water from cup to cup, but it's the same water and it's a fixed amount of water. So sometimes you worry, like, how how is this water going to sustain a growing population? You know, at the same time, more people are moving to Arizona um, and the river is, the river's output is just not very secure. So it can be really scary and can be really confusing um, trying to figure out how to how to deal with the realities of this river and how to talk about it especially. So one thing I was hoping to do again with this story was just suss out how do people think about this river, especially people that literally live right alongside it. Because as a person that doesn't live alongside it, I'm confused. It's a very complex story to tell. So I'm, I'm interested in your thought processes of how you chose the parts of the story that you wanted to tell in the podcast. Yeah, we definitely had talked about making a story that was more policy driven, that was more about the changes that we are reading about in the news. Um, and there's a lot of excellent reporting already out there about those levels and about the state of this river and about the policy, really nitty gritty policy stuff. That's very important. But I just didn't know what I could really be contributing to that, um, doing a podcast, a 30 minute podcast, uh, looking at that. So I guess I decided to tell it this way because a lot of the people we met along the river, I was so taken by um, and was so taken by, you know, how much people love this river in so many different capacities. Um, if you listen to the episode, you're going to hear people like Patricia. I miss Sespooch. She is a Wallapai river guide who is one of the one of the only Native American women river guides in the Grand Canyon. She has her own company, and she has just really been a huge part of the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River for a really long time, and it's super important to her. I think another one of the clips that sticks with me is when I asked her, like, how would you describe this place to somebody who's never seen it? You can hear so much emotion in her voice. I mean, she really, you know, the first thing she said was, your question makes me want to cry because I cannot put into words what I, basically, I cannot put into words what I think about this place. You know, I mean, she said it much more eloquently than I just did, but I think, um, you know, that really drives home this idea that this this river, especially in a place like the Grand Canyon, it's something that people really can't put into words. And, you know, it's something that I, I can relate to. You know, when I've been on the river, there have been moments where I am filled with so much, um, I guess, gratitude and happiness in a place, for a place and for nature and for this exact moment. And I cannot explain why it's so moving at that moment. Um, and I think that's kind of part of the magic of this Colorado River. At the same time, it's such a practical river. It literally is responsible for growing 
our crops. You know, as I said in the story, Yuma is responsible for 90% of lettuce in the U.S. in the winter. That is that, incredible. That's, that statistic actually blew me away. I was like, how much lettuce? <laughs> how much lettuce? Exactly. Yeah. And when you go there, you see, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing that that's what's going on there. Um, and everybody is in, is in Yuma for the river. You know, um, Steve, who is the farmer that we met, you know, he, he talks about the river in the same way. Of course, he's talking about it in the same way for very different reasons. But, you know, he's looking at the All-American Canal, which, again, is kind of the central system um, carrying river water from farm to farm. And he's enamored by it, by all this infrastructure that makes all of this possible in Yuma. And it's crazy to think that it's the same river. You know, like we were both staring at this big system. And I think having two different reactions, you know, like I was thinking a lot about how much different the river looked in the Grand Canyon. And, you know, he he was looking at this cement canal system in, in awe, you know, and I, it is it is amazing because you know, without it, we wouldn't be able to grow that, those foods in Yuma. And we honestly would not be able to have river water here in my faucet in Southern Arizona. It's a living, breathing thing that is much more, much more than just the word river, isn't it? And can you, you talk me through that? Because that really came across in, in the way some of your characters related to the river. So I think one thing that's really striking about this river is that it changes shape so much, even in the 300 or so miles that I traveled on it, which was from northern Arizona down to the U.S.-Mexico border in southern Arizona. Um, you know, so you have this raging river in the Grand Canyon, and then you have this pretty much a trickle, kind of uh, like a knee-deep or shin-deep uh, waterway in um, southern Arizona in Yuma. Um, and that's because of the Moralos Dam area that's going to be kind of a very different section of the river. And we even have a, a person in our story, uh, Justin, he is a, a Kokopa tribal member. Um, and that's the tribe that, that uh, lives along the U.S.-Mexico border uh, near Yuma. Um, you know, he says, this is the river that cut the Grand Canyon. And here at our location, pretty much where the river ends, it is knee deep, uh, knee height, and you can walk across. Um, you know, that to me is a quote that really sticks sticks with me. And, and that portion of the river has been that way for some time, you know, and it should be noted that the Kokopa, um, they still have Colorado River water. They have, they have water for drinking and farming, but um, that cultural connection to the river for them has, has changed quite a bit. Um, that was one thing that was so much of a through line with a lot of the people that we spoke to about this river, that it, it really is a a character onto itself. It's a le living, breathing thing that people have built their lives around, um, not just practically, but also culturally. Uh, it sounds a little cheesy, but honestly, the word magic came up so often in our trip. Um, you know, it really is one of those things that, um, yeah, it's it's magical in a lot of different contexts for people. Um, and it is this this living, breathing thing that that means a lot to a lot of different people, but what that actually, you know, what that what that is, is is very different depending on where you are and who you are you really brought it to life um i loved hearing about about some of those characters who live and work alongside the river too so thank you very much lisa for sharing that story with us and and your own personal connection to it um it was a fantastic on spec episode and um i just want to say thank you so much and if you haven't heard it yet 
and you're listening to this Q&A, do listen, keeping the Colorado. Thank you, Nadine, so much. And uh, yes, please do tune in um, to On Spec and listen to you, Keeping the Colorado. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks, Elisa. Thank you, Nadine.